It's great to be here. Good morning. Um, let's, let's just start off with talking about Princess Bride just a little bit more. In 1992, when we uh, brought home a little puppy, uh, a a corgi chow mix, um, my daughter's birthday, and she wanted a a puppy. And so we had a family dog, and we said, what should we call this little dog, this beautiful little dog? And my son Isaac said, Wesley. And my daughter said, Buttercup. And so if you know the Princess Bride... These are the two main characters, and so henceforth, Wesley Buttercup was our precious family dog. I want to just say that Wesley taught me spiritual disciplines. Uh, He had physical needs early in the morning and would wake me up, and we met each other at about 5.30 a.m. every morning, and I would take him for a walk with a cup of coffee, my leash, and my read through the Bible in a year. And Wesley helped me with spiritual disciplines. I would walk around the park, and I would pray, and I would sing, and I would prepare my heart for the day before me. Every day, little Wesley Buttercup led the charge, and we went around the neighborhood. I met neighbors. I had a community discipline. I had a physical discipline. I had a spiritual discipline. And invariably, I would come back with some passage that would stick in my heart and in my head, and I would say, Lord, oh God, would you help me to memorize this? And Wesley and I, I, he was the only one who really knew all of the songs that I sang to the Lord. He heard them all. And one of them, there there are three passages that I like to start with, Wesley heard all of these because they stuck in my heart as I was walking around the park, preparing myself to go to Arizona State University and to work there. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. He who finds a wife, I found a suitable companion. I asked the Lord for a suitable companion, and the Lord brought a a, a wife who has been my greatest blessing on this earth, uh, apart from the Lord, to serve the Lord. And I would say that she has been um, with me in this whole area, this whole way. Another, I won't sing it, it's a very long passage. It's from Acts 17. And it starts off with, From one man he made every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Determine their pre-appointed times. That got me. Determine their pre-appointed times and the boundaries where they should live. The boundaries, the place, the time that all of us live and with what we're doing. These are pre-appointed by God. Why does he go to all of this trouble? Next part. That they might seek him in the hope that they might find him Oh, that they might find him, for he's not far away. And in him we live, and in him we move, and in him we have our being, our being. God placed me in a place, like he's placed you in a place, and in a time that we would intersect with those who are in the same boundaries and in the same time frame as us. That is a sovereign God. That is an amazing God who knows our times, who knows our places, and has appointed us for his good purposes. 
I wanted to also mention another uh, uh, part of God's word that really touched me. And actually, I memorize uh, every, every verse I can that deals with the nations. So there are tons of them that I, I could sing 400 of them for you this morning. And some of them are just so awful in the tune, but the words are golden. They're all golden. <laughs> I like this one too. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to win as many as I can. To the Jew, I became a Jew to win the Jew. To those not under the law, I became as one not under the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I may win as many as possible. So I became a sun devil at Arizona State University to try to win as many as I can of the 167 countries that came to ASU. So I am wearing the ASU colors. I never graduated from the school, but God put me in that place. So imagine for a moment now that you are an incoming group of international students to our language program. Actually, this is about the size. We would have 300, 200, 300, 400, 500 new students coming in in a semester. And I would give them the ASU culture. And so I've I, most of the songs that I love to sing and the ones that bless my heart are from God's Word. I also have put some poetry and other things that I've loved over many years to music too. But this one, I teach to everybody that's coming into the university. Would you mind just helping me out for a moment, pretending that you're international students that have just come to ASU? I know if you're from USC, you can pass with these colors too. <laughs> and if you're from the University of Minnesota, in fact. Okay. And so I would teach this song, and I'm going to ask you to uh, um, help me on this, but first by standing up, if you will. Everyone, please stand up. And I'd like for you to make with your bodies, in as creative way as you possibly can, the letter A. Are you ready? One, two, three, go. A. Very nice. So I would remind students, please don't do this, because then you have to go to Ohio State University. This one is A, Arizona. Everyone, A. The next letter is S. All right, ready, go. Let's see your S, your best S. That's right, here we go. S. And then the last one is the letter U. Let's put it all together. Here we go. A. S. U. Oh, let's go a little faster. A. S. U. Let's go as fast as you can. Ready, go. Okay. Nice job. Very good. Don't sit down. Don't sit down yet. All right. So I'm going to sing the song that is the summary of our language program. That is the summary of our language program. And it ends with ASU. And it goes like this. American English and Culture Program. Reading, writing, listening, and speaking to. American English and Culture Program. ESL. What is ESL? English as a second language. ESL at ASU. All right, here we go. I'm going to sing it, and then you repeat. American English and Culture Program. American English and Culture Program. Reading, writing, listening, and speaking to. Reading, writing, listening, and speaking to. Let's repeat. American English and Culture Program. American English and Culture Program. ESL at ASU. 
ESL at ASU. One more time now. ESL at, come on, here we go. ASU. Woo, nice job. Very good. Thank you very much. Welcome to ASU. One of the things that I wanted to do was to become, study the university. First of all, study God's word. Study who God is and how he has made me and put me in that place. Also wanted to study the university. I buried myself in the archives of the university when I first uh, went there. I wanted to know the history and the background of this place. And then I've studied every president of Arizona State University as closely as possible. But I've studied a few other people, too. My area is linguistics, applied linguistics, teaching, international education, and missions. So I love the stories of William Carey, Hudson Taylor, and an educator who has blessed me very much is C.S. Lewis, not only for what he has written. We are talking about Chronicles of Narnia. We go back to Princess Bride and Chronicles of Narnia. Sweet things, sweet things. But also C.S. Lewis was a Oxford, Cambridge don, and he taught and mentored, and most of his writing actually is academic writing. The majority of everything he wrote was actually academic. But boy, did he write a lot of other mighty fine things, right? There is also somebody else that influenced me quite a bit. His name is Donald Dore. So knowing that I wanted to serve the nations and asking him, asking the Lord, begging the Lord, please let me serve you among the nations, then it was, yes, I could go in that direction. I felt confirmed in that way, but I had to work out the details. How was I going to do that? So I went on for a master's degree in teaching English as a second language at William Carey International University. And one of my professors, he did three things that shaped my life very, very much. Didn't almost recognize how much he had done that until after he died and I reflected on his life. One of the things that he did was before class started, he invited the entire class over to his home. He had a modest home. I don't know what we ate, just simple items. But the class was brought into his home. We met him and his wife, learned a little bit about the man who was going to be teaching us in a class. That shaped my life. Since that time, after I got my degree, I followed Donald Dorr's steps. And we invited every class that I ever taught, teacher training, ESL classes, bringing in scholars, students. We invited every single class, almost without exception, unless there was illness in our family and we couldn't do it, over to our home. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of students and scholars have been to our home to have a very cheap meal with us. Spaghetti, all we could afford most of the time. With meat, sauce with meat and without. My wife made garlic bread, and she made brownies out of a box that our international students absolutely loved, served it up with some ice cream and some coffee or tea, and thousands came over to our home. 
was laid in place by Donald Doerr's example. Because when Donald Doerr did that, he made himself so welcoming and open that I found myself coming back to him to ask him hard questions about my future and my direction, being engaged to get married and wondering if I could have a career in this area and sitting down with him and him sharing his life and how he got to where he got uh, to this place and then praying with me. Well, how did he get to that place? Donald Dorr was actually a pastor in Pasadena of a church where he was approached to, by the city, approached to host a um, English classes in their classrooms for refugees from Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, boat people. And he said, oh, we would love to do that. And I'll go further than that. We'll have people from our church teach those classes. And so it was decided that they were going to do that at his church. And so he threw out the invitation to come and teach English to refugees, desperate to learn English and to survive in a new place, no one signed up. None of his congregation volunteered. So wanting to keep his promise, Donald Dorr began to teach English as a second language on top of his other duties and responsibilities. And he said that after one year, he found that he had led more people to the Lord from his ESL classes than in his being a pastor. So in obedience to what God was doing, he quit the ministry to have a ministry. And when he said that to me, it loosened me up to this point where I could have a ministry because a ministry is not only what you do, it is who you are. There are so many people who have the title of a minister, but they're not lights. And there are so many people that don't have the title of being a minister, and they are shining lights, and they are salt, and they are alive with a passion and the zeal for, for the Lord and his holiness and for his name among the nations. And so I saw that in Donald Dorr. An open home, an open life, following the Lord in obedience. And then the third thing, I said, can I follow you? He taught my class during the day how to teach English. And then at night, he taught refugees English. He was a practitioner of what he was doing, what he was teaching. So I met him at community college, not far from here, actually. And we met in the parking lot. And as we were walking to his class, he was stopped and interrupted by tons of students, former students, that said, uh, Dr. Doerr, Dr. Doerr. And they came up and they hugged him and they said, thank you for being my teacher. And I thought, oh my goodness, look at that outpouring. Then I watched him teach that night and it was like magic. <laughs> what was coming out of the students, he knew the students so well. He knew their backgrounds, he knew what they liked to do. He had really surveyed them and gotten to know them, and he was just pulling English out of them and raising the level just slightly so that they could reach it. And I looked at a magician. Afterwards, after the last person had left, the last class uh, student in the class, I walked up to him and I said, I'm breathless. I'm, I'm stunned by what you did. That was like magic. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. You'll be able to do that. And he said, you know, you, you, you put together a good lesson plan. 
you learn a little bit more about teaching techniques and approaches, and you'll be able to do that too. And I said, oh man, I hope so. I'm not sure I could do that. He said, no, 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 you'll be able to do that too. And I said, but I think there's even something more than what you're bringing into your class. And he said, well, let me share this. He said, yes, prepare, know your students, do all of those things. But he said, let the love of Jesus ooze out between your prepositions and your verbs. That man has left so much in my heart. And I'm really grateful for William Carey, Hudson Taylor, C.S. Lewis, and other heroes, and Donald Doerr. My ministry as an ESL teacher, university administrator, and international alumni ambassador, those different things at Arizona State University for 32 years, I like to, to use the uh, Eugene Peterson line on one of his books, a long obedience in the same direction. For me, that's what it's been, a long obedience in the same direction. I needed a foundation, and it started back at at William Carey International University, but I was also challenged when I started at ASU to not only turn in annual reports, but one year to do an exercise on developing a philosophy of, of teaching. And so I went a little farther, and I thought, I want to develop a theology philosophy of teaching. And so I went and embarked on a study through the scriptures, looking at all the parts that deal with language, education, culture, teaching. And I wanted to undergird my, my life when there are challenges, when there are frustrations, disappointments, when there are opportunities, when there are needs, that I would have something to, to undergird what I'm doing. And so I can't give you that theology right now, but I'll give you a couple of glimpses of a few things that meant a lot to me. Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1, parallel uh, verses or chapters in some ways. But one of the things that really got me in Genesis chapter 1 was the linguistic refrain of a linguistic God, a communicative God. And these two refrains are over and over. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God called, and God called, and God called. And then at the end of chapter 1, he makes man in his image. The triune God is a communicative God. And before the material universe, Francis Schaeffer said, and Jacques Ellul said, and J.I. Packer said, before the material universe, there was language and friendship and love within the community of God. And then he makes a community of man. The Trinity makes a twinity. And he calls them male and female. A suitable companion. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. And Adam found something that was so great. He found a communicative being to share language and friendship and love like the creator. And then they formed a community as well and had a child. Those things became very important for me in a classroom, that the goals of a classroom really should be more than just English for engineering, English for science and technology, English for sustainability, reading, writing, listening, and speaking too, pronunciation, vocabulary, and grammar. And for getting a degree, 
for all the things that you're going to do with English in a lifetime. The highest aims are there within the triune God. Language, friendship, and love. And just like Adam, I did just the same thing that Adam did when I saw Barbara. I wrote a poem to her. I couldn't stop. Bone of my bone. So when I met my wife in Minnesota, I wrote a very simple poem. I have loved you for one winter. And through the snows of March that melt, save us water from our runoff when our August thirst is felt. Didn't know I was going to live in Arizona for 32 years. (laughs) I have loved you for one winter. Ah, more seasons of your love. And she's given me 35 seasons of her love in language and friendship and love. Upon these things, we build language classrooms and our lives in outreach to others. You are all in language communities, tons of them, tons of them. John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word. Our God has a linguistic nickname. He is a communication of God. Well, I saw application for this with working with different populations. Some who are coming to this country and that have very little and that need a language desperately to survive. We clothe the linguistically naked and vulnerable with language. We feed the linguistically hungry. There are so many ways that we need to build out our theologies. After doing that, then I went to another sort of theology, and this one was a distant land theology. And I went through the scriptures, and I began to pull out how God works with sojourners and aliens and international students like the Queen of Sheba who comes a thousand miles on a camel to learn at Solomon's University. And I began to see our God is a God over all the earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And you cannot escape him. In fact, so many times as you look at the life of Jesus, he's traveling, he's moving, he's encountering people on the move. And I thought, these are the people that are going to come into my life. I need to develop a theology of distant places. So how does this work out in a a classroom? Well, I like what others have said. Excellence must define what we do. To earn the right to speak, we must do our very best. I think in some ways I almost became defined as as a sort of little Mr. ASU. I wore the tie more than anybody else. I brought these things around. I wrote songs. (laughs) I carried around the design aspirations of our university. I would talk with people about them. And I wanted to be excellent in what I did for the glory of God. But there are lots of practical things. I wanted to share a couple of things with you. I don't know where I first learned this, but on the first day of class... We would do a couple of things. Yes, lay out what the class is all about. But it's a language class, and so we would do some pair work. And uh, I'd say, 
you're sitting next to uh, someone, and I would like you to interview your new friend. You see, we're even introducing language. I want you to uh, interview your new friend, and then please introduce your new friend. Don't introduce yourself. We're going to ask four or five questions, and then I'd like you to introduce your new friend. We're going to learn all the names in the classroom today. We did a little game so that we could learn all the names because the names are so important. And then at the very end, I said, this is your one chance to ask me any question. We're going to do a game called 100 Questions. It was never 100 Questions, but that's what I called it. And I'd say, you can ask me anything that you want. I'll give you a quick answer. We're going to go around the room. Just one question, one question, one question, one question, one question, one question. Just today, ask me anything you want. I don't care what it is. And then I want you to remember everything I said. And then we're going to write on the board, team one, team two, team three. Divide you into teams. And you need to use reported speech about what I said. For example, somebody would say, "Uh, what's your favorite color? I would say, blue. Thank you. Next question. Well, when they had reported speech, they would say at the end of this game, you said, somebody from team one would say, you said my favorite color is blue. Yes, good, one point. So it was listening and speaking and question formation and getting to know your teacher. So they would ask questions like, what kind of car do you drive? A Hyundai. Next. What's your favorite sport? I love basketball and volleyball. Next. Do you have kids? Yes, I have two children. And then somebody would invariably say, are you married? And I would say, yes, I am. I love my wife very much. And back to Donald Doerr. You'll have a chance to meet her when you go to the finest restaurant in all of Tempe. It's called Barbara's Kitchen. And they went, oh my goodness, I think he just invited us for dinner. And we would probably be one of the few American homes that they would ever enter during the time that they were in the United States. The second question that would come up was often, uh, do you have a religion? And I would say, I wouldn't say I was a Christian because I didn't know what that meant to them. And I would say, I I became a Christian and I love Jesus very much. It was kind of parallel to what I said about my wife. Yes, I'm married. I love my wife very much. I'll have a chance to meet her. I became a Christian. Not that I was born one, but I became a Christian. And I love Jesus very much. Next question. So one day we were doing this. It was just kind of a fun fun moment. I had students from about 10 different countries in the class. And we were going around, and we were going really, really fast. And then we got to Pascal from France. And he said, "Uh, do you have a religion? And I said, yes, I became a Christian. I love Jesus very much. Next went around to Pascal again, and he said, what's one reason why you believe in God? And I said, well, there are five reasons. I'll give you one. So I gave him one reason really quick, and I said, next. Got around to Pascal again. And he said, give me another reason. So I I didn't bring it up. And I said, well, here's another reason why I, I became a Christian, why I love Jesus and believe in him. Next. We came around to Pascal. The whole class is looking at Pascal. What's he going to say? Me too. And Pascal said, have you always been faithful to your wife? And I said, and the whole class went, looked at me, looked back at him, like, I can't believe he just asked the, the teacher that question. 
And I said, uh, yes, I have been always faithful to my wife. I hope that I will die first. That I never want to be unfaithful to her. Now, I, I, I know that I could have also, if I had been unfaithful, I could have said, she forgave me, God forgave me, I was a stupid man. And I'm really sorry for that. But by God's grace, he has kept me um, uh, faithful to her. And so I said, yes. And the whole class went, oh. Language, friendship, and love. What followed after that little game that we played, and then they had to remember what I said, was that students came up to me afterwards and said, some Korean students came up and said, I'm a Christian too. You're the first teacher that I know who said that you're a Christian. I'm so happy to meet you. They said, where do you go to church? And there were others who came up and said, I I heard you're a Christian. Many Muslim students, in fact. And they would say things like, uh, can I ask you some questions? And those, those uh, after class times, would be one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. Would be another invitation to our home for dinner. It was amazing. And then there's also uh, praying for our students. In fact, when we would test them to place them into different levels, I would often go to the uh, testing and I would look around the room, proctoring the test, proctoring and praying. I didn't know their names. I could only guess where they were from. And I went around the entire test center, testing room, praying for them individually, that God would work in their lives and touch them. And that one day, they would even use English. Be better if it was in their own heart language, but maybe in English, they'll hear the gospel as well. What about outside the classroom? Well, I had a student who invited me to the mosque. And so I went with him to the mosque in the cultural center, and I found that uh, the mosque was really quite close to the university. It had been built just about the same year that I joined ASU in 1984. A couple of years later, I invited a couple of friends, some who were going to go overseas to be workers in different countries among the same peoples. And I said, let's go over to the mosque on Fridays. Make it a a, a discipline of place for us. And a a discipline of remembrance for us to pray for the sons and daughters of Ishmael. Let's go. And so what we would do on Fridays is that we we would go to a little place that served up some delicious shish kebab. We'd have guava juice, shish kebab, and... um, They took a long time to prepare that food. And so while my students were passing the window waving to me, they would go on into the mosque, and we would order our food, and we would tell the owner of the restaurant, we'll be back in a few minutes. And we would go outside, and we would would walk around. We wouldn't raise our hands. We wouldn't close our eyes. But we would walk and talk and pray around the mosque for the sons and daughters of Ishmael, sometimes by country, by place, by name. And then... We'd eat our shish kebab. And then when they would come out of the mosque, we would finish our meal and we would walk back to the university together. Hi, let me introduce you to my friend, some of the workers. And we're going to go overseas. And then we'd walk back and we'd say, what did you do in the mosque today? Well, they knew that I was a Christian too, and so they had a lot of questions for me again. And by the time we got to the university, we were talking about how could Jesus be the Son of God? What does that mean? 
and dispelling some of the things that they misunderstood about that and also led on to other conversations. This also was a discipline of place, a discipline of cuisine, and a discipline of prayer. Another thing that we did after a, a perspectives class, many of us were taking perspectives class, classes, and we just really had a sense that God was doing something at the university. And so we began what we call the ASU Haystack Prayer Meeting. For seven years, on Monday morning at 7 a.m., we met to pray for the nations that were coming to ASU. We prayed for the leadership of ASU, that they would be wise and good leaders. We prayed for the American students, that they would engage the internationals. We prayed that the American students would go to the ends of the earth. And we prayed for the salvation of international students, much like Samuel J. Mills did in the early 1800s at Williams College. His mother had dedicated little Samuel J. Mills before there was even one American mission agency. Samuel's mom prayed that little Samuel would be a light to the nations and he would be set apart for the nations. And when Samuel grew up, he went to Williams College and it was his habit to go and pray twice a week for world evangelization. And he prayed with others, just a small band of others. There's now a, a haystack memorial at Williams College. Do you know about Samuel J. Mills? I didn't before I took that class. But he shook the world in prayer. And a mother dedicated her child in that way. And we said, let's be dedicated like that here. Let's be dedicated among the nations here. And there was only a small band of us that met. But we saw the blessings of God flow through, I believe, the ends of the earth, coming and going at the university. It was an invisible ministry, really, in so many ways. We prayed at Danforth Chapel, a little chapel on campus, every, every week. And then Luke chapter 5 began to penetrate my heart. I saw that God called Peter to go cast his net into the deep waters, and I thought, there are some deep waters here of some of the most unreached peoples of the world coming to our campus. 75% are from the most unreached places in the world. And, of course, we think we know how to fish. We think we know how to teach. We think we know how to do these things. And Peter had been fishing all night. He didn't want to fish anymore. And the Lord said, cast your net into the deep waters, totally antithetical to how he had been fishing. And he said, okay, if you, if you want me to, I'll do that. And he threw out his net, and the, the net was full, the biggest haul of fish that he had ever ever seen, except, of course, the day of Pentecost, when his nets were breaking then too. But what did he do when your nets are breaking? He called out to his partners. I needed partners in the ministry. I was trying to do too many things on my own. And the Lord really spoke to my heart through that passage. Mark, you need partners in the university, outside the university, in local churches, in parachurch groups, individuals, the students who are coming to the university. And so we created a network. We called it the Backyard Network, initially meeting in our home. And then it outgrew our home and began meeting in some local uh, 
public spaces and churches. The goal was to reach 5,000 at that time. Now we're over 10,000 international students. But over 5,000 international students in word and deed with the love of Jesus. So you can see I'm kind of outnumbered for that task. If Unless I get partners, there's no hope in doing that. And so we asked the Lord for partners, and we started the Backyard Network, which also met for about seven years on a, in a very faithful way. And within the university, too, looking for how does the university work, studying it and seeing that I had... Yes, challenges and, and lots, of, uh, lots of things that would come up that were not easy. But I also found pathways within the university that were already laid out for anybody, like being a faculty advisor to Christian clubs and at the end of the year being thanked by one of the vice presidents for being a faculty advisor for a Christian club. And when students from that club would come to my office and I would have prayer for them, I'm being a faculty advisor on campus. Say thank you. Because I'm serving the university in this way. And then also, I had the opportunity with three others to be the founding member of the Aslan Society at ASU, back to Chronicles of Narnia. And the Aslan Society was a society of Christian faculty and staff for Bible study and for special speakers. So we study the university also now for success in our work, in our witness, and in our ministry. So Arizona State University. I just took a quick picture of this before I came. I looked at the seal, and I found that the seal was quite interesting. So you all just came to ASU, and so I'm giving you each a seal. We spent thousands of dollars for this ASU souvenir stuff bookmarks, banners, seals. And I would say to a teacher training group that came in from Iraq or from Korea or from France or from China or wherever, and I would say, let's study this because we're ESL teachers. We just sang the song American English and called ASL and ASU, and we talked about the colors of ASU. Now let's look at the history of ASU. So when, when did this university become a university? Anybody? 1885, before Arizona became a state in 1912. And when you look at, oh, and also this was the seal in 1958 when Arizona State College became Arizona State University. So let's look inside the seal. There are five C's that in 1912 defined this culture and this place. Five C's of Arizona, they're famous. I'll give you a dollar for any C that you can guess. Oh, they're, they're guessing like crazy. C, 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 C. Cactus, no. Canyon, no. Coyote, no. Coffee, no. Chips, no. They can't guess. But in 1912, what defined that place and made it a habitable place where people could come were the five C's of Arizona. They are cattle, cotton. Oh, by the way, I'm an English teacher, so these C words are great vocabulary words. Cattle, cotton, citrus, copper, and climate. 
There are other C words that are just great. What about in your city, in your country? What would be the five C's of your place that made it flourish? What about as a teacher? What are the five C words that you think are really important? Communication, cooperation, creativity. What are you, what, so C is just a lovely letter in the alphabet. Now, who made the cattle? Did anybody make the cattle? Anybody make the citrus? How about the climate? How about the copper? Anybody make those things? No. But in 1912, and later in 1958, they gave you a clue. It's actually more than a clue. It's a declaration of where those things came from. And it's the Latin phrase. You can barely see it. And it's ditat deus. Does anybody know what ditat deus means? Nobody knows. In fact, I think that Arizona State University, none of the professors, even the president, they don't talk about this. They don't know it. But on every diploma and every certificate and on every sash is the declaration that our God reigns. It is the creator God of the universe because Deus means God provides. God enriches. He has given us cattle, copper, citrus, these things, and with it, we create our civilization and our society. You will do the same with your areas. You will take these things that are inherently laid there for you to create and to establish great things. And so without doing anything but telling history, vocabulary, and a little Latin, we get to the gospel of creation, a very good place to start when you're telling the gospel story. On every, in every building, in every building, we see these, this sign. In 2002, President Michael Crow, Time Magazine, called him one of the five most brilliant university presidents in the United States, came to Arizona State University. And these are the desired aspirations of the new American university. And so I would often talk to students and say, I think this is your game plan of how you can be successful. You want to leverage two places. You want to leverage Arizona State University, new friendships, relationships, get to know the labs, researchers, professors, your Donald Doors, and then bring them back with you to solve problems, to look at needs, challenges, and opportunities in the average other place that you're going to leverage, which is your home. You want to transform your society. You want to value entrepreneurship. You want to do these kinds of things. I like all of these eight. I think that President Crow actually took them all in some indirect way from Scripture. And then I would try to talk with churches. In fact, I talked to a lot of churches, and I would say, here are the design aspirations of Arizona State University. Let me ask you a question. How can you leverage this place for the kingdom of God? How can you intersect? I'll give you 30 ways that you can intersect with this university. 
30 different ways that the people of your church and your congregation can connect with this university. Leverage place. Leverage this place. Don't see it as a foe. See it as an opportunity. Let's transform society. These are the words of our God to transform society. Hershey Town. The transformation of society. Value entrepreneurship. Does our Lord value entrepreneurship or what? So he tells a story of, a, of, a, of an entrepreneur who gives a talent, an amount of money to three people. Comes back after a while and says, tell me what you've done entrepreneurially. What have you done? And one said, I went from one to five talents. And he said, bang up job. You're going to have more to do because we value entrepreneurship in the kingdom of God. It's an expanding kingdom. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion is sure. You can have confidence in this kingdom. It's better than your company. It is a kingdom that's dominion will never end. The next guy, one to three, sir. I went from one talent to three. And he said, fabulous job. Keep going on. Here's some more. And then the one that buried it, he got fired. Literally, you're, you're not in this kingdom. Harsh words. We are called to be entrepreneurial. We could go down all eight of these things. So how is the church engaging with the university? Let's study our enterprises. Let's study our governments. Let's study our cities. Let's go back into history. Let's look at the current state. Let's follow our presidents and our leaders. I have to say this, that I studied President Michael Crow all the time. Where is he going? What is he doing? And in the summertime, I would say, sir, what are you reading this summer? And he would send me his reading list. I wanted to know the mind of our leader. And when President Crow established the, the, the first ever sustainability institute, a large institute, not just a, a, a department, but an institute of sustainability, within three months, we were teaching English for sustainability. We didn't even know what it was. We had to study what sustainability was in the economy, equity, and environment. We brought together a course for those who are going on into that area. So here we go. We just say that we have opportunities all around us to engage in the worlds in which we live. Let's open our eyes to study those places and those things. Even study a little bit more about our colleagues. So I'm going to finish with these five things. Why serve at ASU for 32 years? Well, because he wouldn't let me do anything else until the last month. And then he wouldn't let me stay and said, go. But I would say to reach the 167 nations coming to ASU with the love of Jesus in word and deed, number two, to see American students go to the ends of the earth in their own backyards and overseas. Number three, to see the university flourish like a small city. Our little language program began to bring in a flow of hundreds of millions of dollars of out-of-state tuition to the university. It was so greatly appreciated. And they recognized what we were doing. 
We were one of the largest profit centers for our university. Is that important to me? Yes, it is, because it's part of the excellence and impact and access that our university talks about. I thought about this one all the time. God wants to grow my character and to make me more like Jesus. And a lot of times he'll do that through adversity and challenge. And I, every year with John Wesley Buttercup, I throw in John, you know, just to elevate his status a little bit. But Wesley Buttercup, Wesley Buttercup and I would go out and I would start every year reading through the Bible and I would get to the story of Joseph and just park myself there. I said, Lord, I'm not like Joseph, but I am like Joseph in many ways. I want to see many people saved, many people saved for you. And I would study his life. And I would think about his character, his adversity, and his challenges. You are going to, as it's already been alluded, you're in that same ballpark with me. There, there are no easy places. And all the success stories that I've read about of great missionaries, they went through deep, deep, deep times of despair and disillusionment and disappointment and heartbreak and pain. And God sustained them. He enriches. He provides. Dita Deus. And then the last one. To glorify God with the work of my hands. Oh God, would you establish the work of my hands? Would you establish the work of my hands? And he would. And in many different ways than I had imagined. And he will and, and has. Hasn't he for you? He certainly has. For all of us. Great is our God over all the earth. So let's finish with Acts 17. Let's go back. From one man he made every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, determine their pre-appointed times and the boundaries where they should live. Why? That they might seek him in the hope that they might find him. He's not far away. He is not far away. And he dwells in you as his people. Amen.